Good morning. Welcome back, those of you who've been on vacation. I can see who's been on vacation, the nice tan, the well-rested, refreshed look on your face. Uh, if you've got a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Colossians. We're in chapter 1. We'll start looking at verse 9 this morning. If you are just back from vacation, been out for a couple of weeks, or if you're visiting, we're early in a sermon series in the book of Colossians. This letter, which was written over 2,000 years ago, is a living letter. A letter from the hand of the Apostle Paul to the church. First to the church in Colossae, but now handed down to us by His Spirit. It was given so that we might see the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ in all things. To see that He is our supreme and sufficient Savior. For there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. That we would see Him as our supreme and sufficient Lord. For all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. And that we would see that He is our supreme and sufficient Head. For, for He is the firstborn of all creation as well as of the dead. As we learned last week, Paul had not visited Colossae before he wrote this letter. What he knew of the church had been communicated to him by Epaphras, his friend. Even so, it is clear to see Paul's affection for the church. He gushes before the Lord in his prayers for the people. He praises God for the inward working of the gospel in their life. The way that faith had taken root in their hearts that had drawn them to the Lord Jesus Christ. He also praises God for the outward working of the gospel, for the way the gospel had reoriented their loves. And not just what they love, but also who they loved. Their love is not just for those who are like them. As Mike said last week, their love was for all the saints, no matter the socioeconomic or racial or ethnic background, they embraced them all. That's when we know that the gospel is bearing fruit in our lives, you know. When we begin to to see and love those who are different from us as if they were the same as us. As we'll see in our text this morning, Paul's prayer transitions from thanksgiving to petition. Paul moves from thanking God for them to asking God for them. And what does he pray for? What does he pray about? Well, let's look at our text and find out. Again, Colossians 1, beginning in verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion and the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for the reality of this truth that You have transferred us out of the domain of darkness and into the beloved kingdom of Your Son. Lord, would this reality dominate our minds and our hearts and our lives. And Father, would You speak to us, Your people, for we long to hear from You words of heaven. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like many of you, our family has had the privilege of spending some time at the beach this summer. And every time we go to the beach, I'm always fascinated and excited by what I see, both on the beach and in the ocean. I I love seeing the varieties of fish. I love seeing the different sizes and shapes of the seashells. I even love the, the beautiful green colors of the ocean. But nothing fascinates me more than watching wave after wave after wave wash against the shore. The waves never end. They never stop. There's not a stop button someone pushes to give the ocean a break overnight. Or swimmers, for that matter. The waves keep coming and coming. When I think of Paul praying for the church, whether it's the Colossian church, whether it's our church or other churches, that's the image that comes to mind. Wave after wave of prayer washing on heaven's shore. Relentless, unceasing. That's actually the word Paul uses in verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. His prayers for these young believers continued on without stopping, without slowing down, without running out. They were unceasing. Have you ever wondered how often you should pray about something? I used to wonder that all the time. I wondered if there was a certain number of prayers I needed to pray for a particular request. I especially wondered that when my prayers didn't seem to be answered. I assumed that maybe I hadn't prayed often enough or maybe even hard enough. If you've ever thought that, you know that's a terrible place to be, isn't it? It's anxiety producing because you never know if I've prayed enough. And I want to be clear, when Paul says that we haven't ceased praying for you, He's not saying that he prayed for these believers all day, every day, all the time. Rather, I think he faithfully and consistently prayed for them. Every time God prompted him with their burdens and their thoughts about these Colossians, he he prayed for them. Anytime he felt a burden to pray, he, he would pray to God for them. And I think that's a wonderful rule of thumb for you and for me when, when it comes to praying and wondering how often that we pray. We We pray as long as there's a burden. We pray until God answers that burden. But it's not just the frequency of our prayer that I think we wonder about. I think we also wonder about the purpose of our prayer. Paul would say that prayer is informative. But informative for whom? I think we tend to think that our prayer is informative for God. We tend to think that that we are there to inform God of our need through our prayer. To bring Him into our struggle. After all, how can God act on our need if He doesn't know what our need is? And while I think that might be a popular view in some circles, I don't think it's a very biblical view, actually. The Bible over and over reveals God's intimate knowledge of our lives. Perhaps the best example is from David in Psalm 139. He opens the chapter with praises for God's ability and His desire to know Him. To know us. He says this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. 
You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. There wasn't anything David could tell God about his life that he didn't already know. There was no single need or thought in David's life that was hidden from God. In fact, God knew David better than David knew himself. And God knows you better than you even know yourself. God already knows it all. And I hope that brings you encouragement this morning as you consider your own understanding and practice of prayer. Nothing at all is hidden from God. God's knowledge of our lives is not dependent on us telling Him about it. So yes, prayer is informative, but not for God. Well, if not for God, then for whom? It's informative for you and for me. When we pray, you see, we we ask God to show us what we cannot see on our own. We ask God to open our eyes so that we can see what He wants us to see, what we need to see about Him, about us, about even our world. And so what does Paul want us to know about God in this prayer? Well, the first thing I think is that he wants us to know His will. He wants us to know God's will. Paul's prayer for the Colossians in verses 9 and 10 is that, they may be filled with a knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul is asking God to open the eyes and hearts of these dear believers. Why? So, so that they can know God and His will. And by knowing God's will and trusting in it, they can live the kind of life that pleases God and that bears much fruit. You see, Paul knows what a person believes ultimately shapes how he or she lives their life. What you believe about love shapes how and who you love. What you believe about education shapes how and where you educate your children. What you believe about money shapes about how and where you spend your money. For example, if if I believe money is for making me happy, and at times I certainly do, I will spend it on myself and buy things that will bring me happiness. If I believe that money is for making others, then I will spend it on them. Whatever belief I hold about money, or anything else really for that matter, will ultimately shape my relation to it. Belief and action can never be divorced from each other. Our actions are always fueled and shaped by our beliefs. Now this is especially true in our relationship to God. What we believe about Him shapes how we live in relationship to Him as well. If we believe that He's all-powerful, that He's all-wise, that He's all-loving, then we will trust Him even when life hurts and we don't understand what's happening. Paul prays that God would grow us in the knowledge of Him and His will. And of course, the starting place for that knowing is the Bible, right? It's God's Word. This is where God has chosen to reveal Himself to us. This is His special revelation. But how does knowledge of God become belief in God? How do we go from knowing God's will to trusting in His will? Paul says it's through spiritual wisdom and understanding. And this is really a way of Paul saying uh, that this spiritual wisdom and understanding is really the eye-opening work 
of the Holy Spirit. You see, only God's Spirit can reveal the truth of His will so that we can accept it and believe it. Now this was vitally important in light of the culture the Colossians were living in. Colossae was situated in the country of Phrygia. It lay on the southern banks of the river Lycus, which was a southern tributary of the Meander River. Now the Meander River was famous for its many curves. As a matter of fact, the English word meander comes from this river, which means wander or winding about. Now the Meander River wasn't just describing a geographical feature of the physical landscape. It was actually a metaphorical feature of the spiritual landscape. Colossae was a mixture of differing cultures and religious views. As these groups mixed together, a meandering spirit of the age began to infiltrate and be built up in that community. It began to fill the community with false ideas about the person and work of Jesus. Some sought to dilute the message of the gospel by adding works and traditions to it. Others sought to like the Gnostics, reject Jesus outright and spoke of a different knowledge and truth altogether. The Apostle Paul anticipated the impact this spirit of the age would have on the church. He wrote to Timothy, one of his uh, pastoral interns, if you will, who pastored the church in Ephesus. He wrote these words in 2 Timothy 4, that the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. The spirit of the age in Colossae or Ephesus is no different than the spirit of the age in our culture either. There are many voices in our culture deluding or rejecting the truth of God for a new truth, a more accepting truth, a more tolerable truth. And yet any truth outside of God's truth is really no truth at all. Paul knows that. And he prays that we might gain the spiritual understanding and wisdom necessary to accept and believe in God's will and His truth. And as our knowing God becomes believing God, our actions begin to reflect that change. And what we believe about God begins to shape our actions for God. This is the sense of the rest of Paul's prayer in verse 10. Paul moves from praying that we would know and trust in God's will to now walking or living in a manner worthy of the Lord. A life, a life that is worthy of God's good name. And what might such a life look like? Well, Jesus tells us that it looks like caring for widows and orphans in their distress. Inserting ourselves into their lives and advocating for their needs. It looks like loving our enemies and and doing good to those who hate us. Seeing them with eyes of compassion and mercy and not judgment or revenge. It looks like forgiving those who sin against us. Absorbing the pain their sin has caused us. To absorb that pain at our own cost. It, It also looks like submitting to the civil authorities that God has placed over us regardless of whether we agree with our politics. It is an otherworldly life, to be sure. It is life in the kingdom of heaven. And yet, like Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we are left to wonder, who can do this? Who can live such a life? Who is able to give oneself so completely to the things of God? And the answer, of course, is no one can. 
No one can do this in their own strength, which brings us to the second thing that Paul would want us to know. He, he not only wants us to know God's will, he wants us to know God's strength. Paul's prayer in verse 11 is really a merciful prayer. His prayer is meant to save us from ourselves, from thinking that the Christian life can be lived in our own strength and power. He prays that the Colossians will be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. He prays the same thing for us as well. He prays that because we are so prone to forget or worse, ignore that truth. I remember the first time I had a flat tire. I had just gotten my driver's license and my parents had agreed to let me and my brother travel to my grandparents' house in Tupelo, Mississippi. I was to take my mom's Volvo station wagon because it was the safe car. And with the cruise control set on 50, we plotted up the trace towards Tupelo. And about an hour and a half into the trip, I heard an explosion from the back of the car. It turns out my back left tire had, uh, had a blowout. Thankfully, I was, of course, able to brake and we steered the car over to the shoulder. To make matters worse, I had no idea how to change a flat tire. It never occurred to my driver's ed teacher or my parents that I needed to know such things. I did, thankfully, find the instruction manual and the tools necessary to change the tire. And so I took the tire iron and I placed it on that first lug nut and I pulled. And nothing happened. And then I kind of sort of squatted down in an athletic position and really put my back into it and pulled. And nothing happened again. I tried for about 15 minutes to get any of those lug nuts to come off that tire, but none of them would budge. The only thing left to do was to walk to a farmhouse and call my dad to come get us. And to make matters worse, we didn't even get to go to Tupelo after that. Fast forward about 10 years later. Now I'm living in St. Louis and headed down the interstate for a meeting and I have uh, another flat tire. Fortunately, I was able to get off the interstate, pulled into a side street, got out of the car, went to the trunk, and I experienced this incredible sense of deja vu as I began to pull the tire iron and tools out of the trunk. But I was older now and I was stronger. Surely I would have enough strength to be able to pull the lug nut off the tire. I put the tire iron on and pulled. Once again, nothing. I tried several more times and I realized that nothing had changed. I still wasn't strong enough to get those lug nuts off. Dejected, I went to a nearby dry cleaner and I asked the owner if I could use his phone uh, to call a tow truck. The owner was a kind and elderly gentleman. I, I emphasize elderly, that will play a part in the story in a second. <laughs> he asked me if I had tried cracking the nuts. The look on my face obviously showed him that I hadn't, didn't even know what he was talking about. He kind of chuckled, and we went back to my car, and he put that tire iron on the car, and then he proceeded to stand on that tire iron, and with all of his weight, which wasn't much, began to bounce. And as he bounced, I heard a crack. And he did it again, and it cracked some more. And then he bent down and simply unscrewed the lug nut... <laughs> off the tire. I was overjoyed, of course, and began to crack the nuts on my tires and change my flat tire. Now, I tell you that story because I think we often approach the Christian life much like I did as that 15-year-old uh, 
and 25-year-old trying to change the flat tire. We think that the power to live the Christian life is within us. It's, it's inside of us. It's natural to us. And all we need to do is just muster enough strength and we can do anything. Paul says otherwise. Paul says the strength that we need to live the Christian life comes from the outside of us. You see, only prayer can crack the nuts. Remember the father in Mark 10 whose son was possessed by a demon. The father had asked the disciples to help the son. And they did everything they knew to do for this son. They said and they did all the right things. But in the end they were unsuccessful until Jesus comes along. After Jesus had cast the demon out of the son and restored him, the, the disciples asked him, why couldn't we have healed him? Why didn't we, uh, why weren't we more successful? He told them that this kind of demon could only be driven out by prayer. It wasn't their power. It wasn't their words. It wasn't their sincerity. It was prayer that healed the son. Only prayer could crack the nuts. Let me ask you this morning, are you trying to live the Christian life in your own strength? Are you trying to love your enemies in your own strength? Are you trying to forgive those who've harmed you in your own strength? Are you trying to minister to the needs of those around you in your own strength? The Apostle Paul says it won't work. You can't do it. You need God's strength. You need God's might and God's power behind you. Only through prayer can you find endurance and the joyful patience to faithfully live the Christian life. Only prayer can crack the nuts. The truth is we can't really do it alone, can we? We need others who will join us in that prayer. We need others who can help lift our burdens and concerns before the Lord. And that's why our prayer usher ministry is so important. They are here to pray for you even and especially when your burdens are great. Let them come alongside you and and pray with you. And you'll always find those prayer ushers in the family room after both morning services. There is but one final thing that Paul wants us to know, and it's glorious. He wants us to know God's heart. Above all, Paul wants us to see God's heart. He wants us to be comforted and encouraged by the Father's heart for us. That's especially true as we struggle to endure in life. When we struggle to believe, when we struggle to live our lives in a manner manner worthy of the Lord, Paul shows us God's heart as he says in verses 12 to 14, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I want us to notice that Paul says that we have been qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You and I have been written into His inheritance. On what basis has He done this? How has He qualified us to receive such an inheritance? From time to time, we get credit card offers and loan offers in the mail. Do you get these? They usually say that you are pre-qualified to receive this credit card or you're pre-approved to receive a $50,000 loan. How is it that they have already pre-qualified me and pre-approved me when I haven't even um, made application? Well, these banks and these lenders, they're looking at our credit rating, aren't they? They have determined that our credit is good enough to qualify for that credit card or that loan with them. 
In other words, we measure up to their standards. But not so with God. If God were to look at our spiritual credit score, what would He see? Well, He would see a spiritual credit credit score of zero, wouldn't He? He would see a massive spiritual debt to spiritual asset ratio, wouldn't He? And that's a financial terminology, right? But I think you get the picture. Spiritual debt to spiritual assets. There could be no justification to receive such an inheritance. We wouldn't qualify. Why? Because we wouldn't measure up to that standard. So then how is it that we have been qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light? If it's not our good credit, then whose is it? Paul says it's his son's good credit that we have received. Jesus, remember, was born without any spiritual debt. What's more, he incurred no spiritual debt. Before the Father, he lived a blameless and a perfect life. Though he was tempted as we are, he was without sin. Because of his perfect spiritual credit score, his death on the cross meant that our spiritual debt was wiped away. Jesus redeemed us from our debt. He absorbed the consequences of our spiritual bankruptcy once and for all. But He didn't just redeem that debt. He credited to our life His perfect spiritual credit score, a score that can never go down. It is given to us as if we had earned it ourselves. Because of it, we become co-heirs with Christ and with all other saints in light. In Christ, we see so clearly the Father's heart for us. We see a love that spared no expense for you and for me. A love that cost God everything to make us His own. Is it any wonder that our response should be anything other than thankfulness? When you understand the depth of your need that is matched by the wideness of God's mercy, how can we not be thankful? How can we not live thankful lives? Paul's praying for the Colossians was relentless, like waves washing onto heaven's seashore. Paul says our giving thanks should be as well. You've heard us say before that in the Greek, the present verb tense always has an ongoing action. It's something that we do and keep on doing. So when we read in verse 12 that that we are to be giving thanks to the Father, it's something that we do now and continue doing. We never stop. Like wave after wave washing onto the seashore, we continually give thanks. My prayer for us is that our lives would be defined and marked by thankfulness. That as God reveals His will, His strength, and His heart for us, that we receive them with thanksgiving. May the Spirit give us all spiritual wisdom and understanding that we would know His will fully and walk in it that we would know where our strength lies for living the Christian life and that, that we would know God's heart for us as He has made us the recipient of His eternal inheritance. May God do that in and through us for His glory. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Father, forgive us for thinking that we can live the Christian life in our own strength, for thinking we have advanced beyond our need of Your help. We forget how weak we are and how powerful your strength truly is. By your Holy Spirit, help us to grow in the knowledge of your will and walk in it. Help us to remain thankful and joyful for your heart and our inheritance in the midst of our struggles. 
Anchor us in the sure-footedness of the Gospel and Your love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.